Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If you should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Dennis, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Update on COVID for People Living with Cancer and Their Caregivers. And today's program is supported by Bristol Myers Squibb, and I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. And I just want to acknowledge that we have over 328 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have a number of international participants from Canada, Egypt, India, Lithuania, Malawi, Mauritius, Mexico, Nepal, Nigeria, the Philippines, the United Kingdom. So this is truly a global call as well. And it's really a pleasure to have all of you on the call today. And now it's really my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Richard Grawler. Dr. Grawler is Professor of Medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Jacoby Medical Center. And Dr. Grawler will be addressing how to protect yourself and your loved ones from COVID and Omicron and COVID vaccines and booster vaccines. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grawler. Well, hello, and thank you, Carolyn. I'm Dr. Richard Grawler, a medical oncologist at the Albert Einstein Cancer Center in New York. I have the pleasure of introducing this program, which will discuss many aspects of COVID-19 illness and its relationship to patients and families with cancer. I believe that this is the sixth or seventh program that Cancer Care has presented since the start of the worldwide COVID pandemic on COVID and cancer a little more than three years ago, as this presentation is in May 2023. We're really fortunate to have a very knowledgeable and helpful panel on the call, and they will help update us on key topics related to COVID, information on major vaccines, televisits, and much more. I'll highlight a few issues by way of introduction. Much has changed concerning COVID since early in 2020, which I will outline in just a minute. What has not changed is that being knowledgeable about COVID is vital, and we are all familiar with terms surrounding COVID, but let me just review them quickly and that they can be a bit confusing. We may hear three terms discussed, coronavirus, COVID-19, and SARS-CoV-2. The name of the illness is COVID-19. The co part is, uh, is for coronavirus. The V part is for virus, while the D stands for disease, and the 19 is just for the year 2019 when it was first identified. The actual virus that causes the problem is somewhat confusingly named SARS-CoV-2 which means that this is related to but not identical to the virus uh, causing the SARS disease from 20 years ago. When you get a test to see if you have COVID-19, it tests for that specific SARS-CoV-2 virus itself. No matter what the name, COVID-19 is highly contagious and still can cause serious and even life-threatening illness. What has changed? First, the virus has changed. It has evolved somewhat to different variants. 
and you hear such names as Omicron, although other forms are found depending on your community as to which variants are more prevalent. This is why the vaccines have been adjusted to better cover the range of COVID variants. There is controversy whether current COVID variants are as dangerous as early forms. And that brings up the second change. In most communities, more than 90% of the population now has at least some degree of immunity. So it may be that the current COVID forms remain very nasty, but with immunity, we can ward off or recover from the illness, illness better, much better if our immunity came from being fully vaccinated and boosted. The third change is that neither the World Health Organization, the WHO, or most major governments consider COVID to be the same public health challenge as three years ago. But what does that mean for patients and families dealing with uh, cancer? A quick review of current COVID statistics can put this into context. While every community differs a bit, I'll deal with the May 2023 statistics in New York, which is where I live and work. Even though the emergency has been somewhat downgraded, New York is on target in 2023 at the current rate for 100,000 documented cases this year. And let's face it, most of the cases are not documented. It's on uh, on pace for about 7,000 hospitalizations and around 400 deaths due to COVID. While this is much better than three years ago, these are still sobering numbers. But most relevant to our call is that the overwhelming majority of those serious issues are in older people, especially those over age 50 and certainly 60, and in vulnerable populations, which surely include people with cancer. But by no means is it all gloom and doom. There is much that we can do to protect ourselves and those we care for, as Dr. Wong will enlarge upon. People who are unvaccinated have between six and ten times the rate of serious illness, hospitalization, and death when compared with those who are vaccinated and fully boosted. So first, it is key that all caregivers be fully vaccinated so as not to spread COVID and that people with cancer keep up their vaccines whenever possible as advised by their oncology team. Good hand washing with soap and alcohol-based gels remains important to help stop the spread as well. Second, we should always have home tests available so that if we have such symptoms as cough, fever, achiness, runny nose, congestion, or any suspicion, we can easily see if we have COVID. This is so important because we now have effective treatments, especially for COVID. These treatments are best if started early in the course of COVID, especially in the first few days. One of these treatments is the effective prescription pill Paxlovid. It is indicated for those at particular risk, and this would include almost anyone with cancer and COVID, as well as several other groups of people. Not only does Paxlovid help protect against serious COVID complications, it also relieves symptoms in most people within a few hours, and that's great. An important consideration with Paxlovid is that it can have many interactions with other medicines, so please let your doctor know about any and all medicines you're taking, prescription, over-the-counter, and even herbal, so that they can be adjusted over the few days you may be taking Paxlovid. We must avoid others who have the infection. If in doubt, masking is a good idea around the person with cancer, 
and if we are caregivers, to avoid getting COVID in risky, crowded settings, masking can be helpful also. Every family needs to think about a plan for your own home as to how to handle the situation if a member of the household needs to isolate or begins to show symptoms or is known to have the infection. This includes the person with cancer and any others. It's not easy to do this in the home, but it's a priority. Now, in this program, Dr. Mulvey will also be talking about other vaccines important for patients with cancer, their families, and caregivers, as well as the COVID vaccines. As an example, in a very recent study, it was found that COVID now has about twice the serious outcome rate when compared with influenza. That's actually less than it was three years ago. But that means that influenza remains quite risky, especially for this group, and preventing flu through vaccination and uh, the careful uh, methods that we just talked about is another major step in disease prevention that demands our careful attention. I'll look forward to Dr. Mulvey's presentation. Reliable information is so important at this time. Dr. Suave will review this topic and many aspects about working with your healthcare team. We hope that cancer care will continue to be a useful and reliable resource for you, including with archived material on the website. Dr. Wong will go into greater detail about protecting yourself and family as well as children at this time, and we'll hear from both Drs. Wong and Fleischman regarding the role of televisits in our current environment and practical information about your oncology visits. Later in the program, Ms. Allison Moskowitz-Duggan will discuss about stress management and practical resources, including those available from cancer care. Our panel will be presenting a lot of findings, and we recognize that you may have questions. We'll be happy to discuss more about these and all related issues when we have the question period later. I'll now turn the program back to Carolyn Messner, and we'll look forward to the presentations by my colleagues. Carolyn? Thank you so much. That was a wonderful introduction to the program, and um, I think that I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well, so thank you. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Aaron Mulvey, and Dr. Mulvey is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology and Medical Oncology, while Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Mulvey will be addressing other vaccines, flu, pneumococcal, and shingles vaccines, and also will be discussing COVID and people living with cancer, cancer survivors, and caregivers. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mulvey. Hello, everyone. Um, good afternoon, but also, I suppose, good morning and good evening to our international um, guests. I'm Dr. Erin Mulvey, and I treat patients with lymphoma. I'm going to be speaking about flu, pneumonia, and shingles vaccines. Regarding the patients I treat, many patients with lymphoma and other blood cancers inherently have compromised immune systems even before starting any cancer-directed treatment. If the cancer is affecting normal growth and development of immune cells, this can impact normal immune function. And so just by having one of these diagnoses, it places them at increased risk for infections even before introducing treatments into the picture. Now, in addition to being at increased risk for developing infections, they're also at increased risk of having more severe outcomes if they do get sick. And then on top of that, essentially 
all cancer treatments. This includes chemotherapy, radiation, other cancer-directed medications, including oral agents. These can all weaken the immune system and make individuals susceptible to infections to different degrees. So this is why it is so important for us today to talk about vaccines. And really, this is, again, applicable to all patients with all types of cancer who are undergoing treatment that can impact the immune system. Um, the treatments that we use in lymphoma in particular can have very specific impacts on the response to vaccines. And I will mention a little bit about that later on. So first, I want to talk about three specific vaccines, and then I'll say a couple of words on the timing of vaccines. And again, I just want to reinforce that we recommend patients to receive vaccinations not only to help reduce the risk of getting infections, but also to reduce the severity if they do indeed get sick. So starting with the flu vaccine, the influenza virus which causes the flu is a seasonal virus. And while it does circulate year-round, it tends to peak between December and February in temperate climates, though this has become somewhat less predictable with COVID. The virus is constantly changing, and so the flu vaccine is redeveloped each year to try to best protect against the specific virus that is predicted to be most prevalent. On top of that, immune protection from the flu shot declines over time. So for both of these reasons, all patients with cancer are recommended to receive an annual flu shot. September and October are generally good times to be vaccinated against the flu, ideally by the end of October. Um, a few misconceptions about the flu shot to address. So one, flu vaccines do not cause the flu. Flu vaccines that are given with a needle are made either from inactivated or killed viruses or with only a single protein from the flu virus that's not capable of causing infection. The nasal spray flu vaccine, on the other hand, is made with a weakened or attenuated virus. For those with a normal immune system, this does not cause illness. However, for those with weakened immune systems, there is a theoretic possibility for that. And so we don't recommend the nasal spray flu vaccine for patients with cancer or immunocompromised persons. But again, we do recommend annual flu vaccine injections. Importantly, we also recommend that patients, family members, and household members also get vaccinated as well. Because this is such a prevalent virus in the community, protecting um, close family members and household members is another way that our patients can be protected and less likely to develop these infections. Next, I'll say a few words about pneumonia vaccines. So pneumonia vaccines are also important for persons with cancer. Pneumonia vaccines help to prevent infection by pneumococcal bacteria. This bacteria can cause pneumonia, which is infection of the lungs, but also meningitis, which is inflammation in the membranes around the brain, and bloodstream infections. There are a few different types of pneumococcal vaccines. Prevnar 13 and Pneumovax 23 are two of them. They both protect against multiple strains of bacteria. They're given as an injection. They also do not contain any live virus, and so they're not capable of causing infections. They are both recommended for persons um, undergoing chemo or radiation therapy for cancer or those taking drugs um, for cancer that suppress the immune system. And then finally, the shingles vaccine. Generally, historically, the, the vaccine for shingles has been given to adults over 60 who've had chicken pox to prevent shingles or to lessen the severity of shingles. The older formulation of the shingles vaccine, which is called Zostavax, is made using a weakened live virus. And so like the nasal flu vaccine, it is not recommended for patients undergoing chemo or radiation or those taking drugs that suppress the immune system. However, there is a newer version available that's called Shingrix, 
which is made from a recombinant protein that's not capable of causing infection. And so we do recommend our patients over the age of 50 to get the Shingrix vaccine. And then finally, just a few words regarding the timing of vaccines. In order to do their job, vaccines require a healthy functioning immune system that can recognize and kill infectious agents. And it takes a healthy immune system at least two weeks from the time of vaccination to start recognizing and killing infectious agents. For this reason, in general, vaccines are not recommended during active chemotherapy or radiation therapy because that's exactly the time when the immune system is at its weakest. So it's not that the vaccines would be harmful at that time. It's just that they're less likely to work. So again, in an ideal world, we would do the vaccines before treatment starts while the immune system is still functioning. But we don't live in an ideal world, and so this does come up quite frequently. What if you've already started on treatment? In that case, for vaccines like the flu shot that you're getting annually, we generally recommend keeping up with the normal annual schedule and trying to time it at a point during treatment where we anticipate the most immune function to be present. But for vaccines that are administered only once or as a one-time series, we would recommend to wait until treatment has completed and the immune system has recovered, on average about two or three months or so. For patients with blood cancers and lymphomas specifically, this recovery often takes longer particularly for patients who are treated with monoclonal antibodies like rituximab or obinutuzumab or daratumumab. These can lessen the immune response for up to a year after treatment. But for traditional chemotherapy, the recovery time is often faster. And so your oncologist can tailor the correct time for these vaccines based on the type of cancer and the type of treatment you're receiving. Again, this is in order to maximize the response and not because of riskiness of vaccines. So in summary, we recommend annual flu vaccine, not the nasal spray, to patients and family members. We also recommend pneumonia vaccines and Shingrix for those who are 50 or older. And ideally, we would administer these two weeks before starting treatment. And that concludes my section. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Rosemary Suave. Dr. Suave is Assistant Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine, Transplantation, Oncology, and Infectious Disease Program, Division of Infectious Diseases, while Cornell Medicine. Dr. Suave will be addressing where to find reliable information regarding COVID and working closely with your healthcare team about your wishes and healthcare directives. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Suave. Hello, everyone. Um, thank you very much, Carolyn, for inviting me to join this very important workshop. Um, I'm an infectious diseases consultant, and my specialization is in oncology and transplant infectious diseases. And so I will spend a few minutes exploring how oncologists actually intersect with infectious disease specialists to provide optimal state-of-the-art care to people living with cancer and their caregivers. So we know that cancer patients are at risk for the same infections that the general population is at risk for acquiring. However, in the past few decades, we have acquired a much greater understanding in how to effectively deal with infection in the immunocompromised host. People with cancer are at greater risk of serious infections with more severe complications because their immune system is altered, either by the underlying cancer, such as lymphoma or multiple myeloma, or because of the effect of chemotherapy, such as neutropenia, 
uh, a low white blood count, or the effect of many newer immunomodulatory therapies, such as the many monoclonal antibodies, Brutinib, Rituximab, and others, that specifically affect certain arms of the immune system. As a result of understanding that the immunomodulatory effects of the cancers and therapies that are given to cancer patients predispose them to many infections that are out in the community, but also to infections that are not common in the community, we have become better at predicting infections in cancer patients, and we often do things like use prophylactic antibiotics to prevent infections and also provide information and instruction on what to look out for for our patients in terms of ways to protect themselves from infections that they are at risk for. So the prediction uh, of infection has been uh, very helpful and has been a tool that we've used very nicely over the past few decades, and we continue to increase the knowledge that we know about this. But along came COVID three years ago, and it sort of threw everything we had learned about infections um, in disarray. Uh, we were faced with a new pandemic in March of 2020, and it started to challenge everything we had learned about infections in the immunocompromised host. We were expecting um, that our immunocompromised might have gotten more infections, more serious infections, um, and that it might have hit them first. But what indeed did happen is that things became incorporated in the sort of normal way that things evolve. And during the COVID pandemic, oncologists and infectious disease physicians mobilized a response that was aimed at early diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of COVID in immunocompromised patients. And the bigger challenge was doing this at the same time that we tried to continue to give the patients the oncological care that they required and enable them to come to the hospital, enable them to receive treatments that they needed to receive at a time when we were in quarantine and isolation and worried about things that we didn't know very much about. So over this three-year period of time, a lot was learned, a lot was done, and May 11th, 2023 marked the end of the federal COVID-19 public health emergency um, uh, here in the United States and around the world. So what did we learn from this? We learned about COVID that the virus is very highly mutable and that we should expect the unexpected. We've learned that we this virus mutated through many forms from alpha, beta, delta to omicron. We learned that it is transmitted by aerosol and it can be transmitted when infected people do not have any symptoms. And so these important factors that were learned helped us to get a grip on the pandemic and make help available effectively to immunocompromised hosts. We also learned that vaccines, the use of the uh, present infrastructure to develop the vaccines and to distribute the vaccines helped to bring the pandemic to an end. 
So now we are in an era where the actual pandemic itself is ended. Is the virus gone? Will it ever be gone? Unfortunately not. As of the end of the public health emergency, the scientists and physicians that dealt with COVID are now shifting from an emergency response to incorporating COVID-19 activities into sustainable public health practice. One of the issues during the pandemic response was that there was a lot of misinformation um, that was out there, and it was very difficult at times for patients, their families, and their physicians to sort through a lot of this. And we've learned that public health is very important and that the structure of public health is there to protect us. And so we've learned to turn to the CDC and the WHO for guidance in terms of where we stand at any particular point in time. So right now, we know that there are very few infections with COVID, and they are mostly with the Omicron variant. However, we do know that this could change at any time, and so how do you protect yourself? Now that everything has been liberalized, masks are not worn that much anymore, and people are gathering in large places, um, we need to keep in our minds, what the best way to go ahead and knowing where we are in terms of COVID and any other viruses in the community and how to handle them. And so this requires tremendous effort between the caregivers, the physicians, the physician team, including the oncologist and the infectious disease physician, a real team approach and good communication with patients and their and their caregivers and their families. And so uh, we have basically changed our recommendations as infectious disease physicians um, very frequently over the past few months, depending on what data we've been getting from organizations such as the CDC and the World Health Organization in terms of what is happening out there. So the best advice right now is to make sure that everyone is vaccinated against COVID, especially families and caregivers, because for them, the vaccination would probably work better than for the cancer patients themselves. And sometimes the cancer patients cannot receive the vaccination, such as bone marrow transplants within a certain time after transplant, et cetera. And so it's important to be updated if you are at all in a unit where there is a cancer patient, family or friends. The vaccination that is currently available, the bivalent booster, which I believe is the sixth of the booster vaccines to come out, is actually the latest and the best, and the recommendation is that everyone receive a bivalent booster vaccination, um, and patients who have cancer and can receive it should actually be boosted with more than one dose a month or two apart. So for the families and caregivers, um, the vaccine should be given on a yearly basis, but for the 
patients themselves, they should get the vaccine when they are able to, and then they should have a booster a month later and perhaps another booster a month later, um, depending on what they decide and how their physicians rec what their physicians recommend to them. The other very important thing is early diagnosis, as has already been mentioned by Dr. Grala. Early diagnosis is important because you can protect yourself by isolating, by basically not spreading the virus, but also making taking the availability of Paxlovid and also we still have remdesivir available. These two drugs might actually be able to help. Remdesivir is beginning to uh, fall out of favor because the latest information that has come out seems to indicate that it might not be effective against some of the later strains. And so here again, the scientists are busy trying to get new therapies out there, um, and it is important to stay abreast of what is available by consulting your physician and listening to recommendations from the CDC and the World Health Organization. Um, in addition, it is very important that if someone has COVID or is afraid, is very at risk of getting COVID and there's an uptick in COVID infections, the simple high respiratory hygienic um, uh, uh, manners of protecting yourself are important. If necessary, use a mask if you are out with in a crowd. Try to keep away from major crowds if at all possible. And use a lot of good hand hygiene. Again, these recommendations should be discussed and uh, talked over with your physician team. Now, in terms of um, making your healthcare team know your wishes, it becomes very important for you to get as much information as possible, but then to discuss what your reservations are. We've had many people who worried about getting the vaccine. We've had people who worried about getting Paxlovid or who wondered what would be the best ways to protect themselves if they were to go out in public. And this requires basically a close communication with your oncology infectious disease team to help answer any questions that might come up. Um, I'm going to emphasize what Dr. Malavi brought up about the other respiratory viruses. Coronaviruses have always been with us. They cause the common cold in most people and a little bit more of a protracted infection and immunocompromised host way before COVID ever came around. They are still around. Other viruses such as RSV, parainfluenza, metanumovirus are also around, and we do not have vaccines yet to protect against them. An RSV vaccine was just made available. Um, it is just coming out now. We are reluctant to use it in immunocompromised patients first because we'd like to see a little bit of a track record in terms of side effects and how useful it is, but RSV is a very um, significant infection often for the immunocompromised host. And so we are recommending that caregivers and family might get it and that 
patients stay tuned, basically, to what the developments are with this current vaccine. The ones, um, the pneumococcal and the flu vaccine and the Shingrix are obviously very important, especially for families and caregivers, also for patients when they are at a point in their course where they can get um, the vaccine. So just to sum up, it's very important to keep the lines of communication open with the caregivers, the oncology team, and share with them any reservations, any questions you might have. Stay tuned with them in order to find out what the latest developments are with respect to COVID and all the other respiratory viruses that are out there. Some are seasonal, some have been coming on and off at any time. And so communication is what is really important. And I'll end there. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Suave. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful presentation. And I know there'll be lots of questions for you during the Q&A, too. You really covered a lot of very important areas. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Mike Wong. Dr. Wong is Professor of Medical Oncology, Melanoma and Cutaneous Malignancies, Executive Director, Integration and Program Development, Cancer Network, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Wong will be addressing how to protect yourself, loved ones, and children from COVID and the role of telemedicine telehealth appointments. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wong. Thank you very much, Dr. Mezzer. It's indeed an uh, honor and a pleasure to be here with you all today. It's uh, tremendous to have such great introduction and, in, and specific information from Dr. Grella, uh, Malve, and Dr. Suave. Uh, and I think just to put everything in perspective, because it's uh, hard for me to be even better than what they've given you in, in, in the specifics of the information, if there's anything you've walked away with, is the fact that this is not a one-size-fit-all. And I think the major thing is to be able to come up with a personal plan for you and your loved ones uh, and uh, really have that discussion with a healthcare provider because that's what you want to do, build a plan. On, on top of that, uh, uh, you know, you heard from Dr. Suave the use of uh, Paxlovid and Vemdesivir, and many of these have to be used, you know, really within days of the start of symptoms. And so you already know you have to have a situation where you can – uh, be aware of what symptoms they are, make the diagnosis, and then start the medication, which really emphasizes a close contact with you and your healthcare team. And I think that's the walk-away message uh, for the front half of my presentation. Uh, I, I want to really emphasize and pick up from where Dr. Uh, Swabe left off, which is the close communication between you and your healthcare team. And, and specifically, I want to talk about this new age uh, post-COVID, and what does that mean? During COVID, we have learned as healthcare providers uh, really how to do telemedicine. Uh, we have beefed up our technology. We have actually put in place uh, uh, standards of, of, of how to do this. We have workflows. Uh, but what is not as well as, uh, put together is what happens on the patient end where you're involved. What does that mean? I think, importantly, as we go into the uh, telemedicine uh, era, as I said, after COVID, the important thing is to realize that there are some great gains from that. Uh, no need to get in a car, no need to go get parking, no need to fight traffic. Uh, you don't need to uh, walk the three blocks from the parking lot to my office, so on and so forth. Uh, 
Uh, but what there is something that's lost from that, the, the, the human contact, the ability to uh, really sort of impress uh, emotionally sometimes, your anxieties, uh, uh, the, the sort of loss of our ability to pick up meta messages from patients. So what that means is that, uh, that if you're involved in telemedicine, uh, there's an onus upon you as a patient to really get what you need uh, because it's not always obvious to us uh, when we're trying to do this electronically. And uh, that really means being organized, uh, having your questions written down, make sure that these are addressed. And I tell all my patients that because I can't see you and pick up messages, that you can just feel free to interrupt the doctor. I know it's not polite, but to just speak up, uh, raise your hand, make just just make a motion, do something. I will not be offended, right? Because honestly, where uh, if you give a doctor a chance, we can just go on for the full clinic and never give you a chance to break in with your uh, with your needs and, and statements. Uh, there's also a technological barrier. So there are advantages. So remember, you have to have the hardware, the software. And one of our best practices is to uh, uh, reach out to patients before their televisit, so someone in my office does that, to make sure that you have the equipment, you know how to do it, you know how to get to the software, you got to get the app, and so on and so forth. And that's one of the things that may be helpful uh, to really sort out when you do come in for your appointments. We have someone in our clinic who can, who's uh, technologically savvy, can help our patients get set up, right? So. And I myself uh, use uh, a program called MyChart, and between all my providers, I have three versions of it, depending on which provider I'm going to. So uh, if I'm having trouble, I can only imagine my patients. So uh, the, the take-home message is to, is to really uh, be organized and make sure you get your needs addressed. And lastly, in the area of, of, uh, of, communi of uh, post-COVID communication with your doctor, uh, none of these things happens during the hours of nine and nine to five exclusively. So in other words, know how to get a hold of your team in case of off-hour emergencies, know who to call, how to call, and then when to call the helpline. So all these things should be well demarcated but can help you as well. So finally, I'll end by saying uh, 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 hooray that the uh, federal mandated COVID emergency is over but it doesn't take away our uh, responsibility to ourselves and to our loved ones, and we have to remain vigilant, uh, and we have to develop new muscle, new ways of doing things in a way we interact with our healthcare team. Great, and I want to say thank you for your time and attention, and I'll turn the program back to uh, Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Wong. That was just a wonderful presentation. I know there'll be questions to you during the Q&A as well. Thanks, thanks so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is founding director of Cancer Support Services, Continuing Cancer Centers of New York, now part of the Mount Sinai Health System, an author and researcher in oncology. And Dr. Fleischman will be addressing how to prepare for your telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes, and talking with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns and follow-up appointments. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Up where Dr. Wong just left off, um, the telehealth visits can be very helpful to all of you, especially if you have a relative or good friend who you want to be involved in your care, 
who lives perhaps in another part of the city or far away from you in a different part of the United States or even in another country uh, the ability, with the ability of telehealth and a um, internet-compatible um, device and Wi-Fi, that individual can join in to your visits if um, you want them to and if they're authorized to. The telehealth visit uh, needs some preparation, and it may be a little more preparation than going to an, an office in-person visit, but it saves a lot, as Dr. Warren has said, in the commuting and the parking and certainly in safety during times when uh, the COVID risk is higher. Uh, if you're going to have a visit, uh, please uh, speak with the provider's office at least a day in advance to make sure exactly how you're going to connect. Sometimes they may call you. Sometimes you may call them. Uh, it may be on the telephone. It may be through an uh, audio and a video connection, and they will need to explain that to you. And Many, many offices will actually do a, sort of a test run the day before to make sure that, um, that everything is working. Make sure your device is fully charged um, so that uh, you don't run out of battery time in the middle of your visit. Think about where you want to be. It should be in a quiet place with a, um, an electrical plug and good Wi-Fi reception. Think about um, who you want to be there, both in person as well as online, and that the office understands uh, who will be participating in the call. The other thing that we encourage you to do, whether it's in person or on a telehealth call, is to have a list of questions. Questions are very important, especially if the visit seems to be rushed, uh, you want to have your questions answered and having them written down on a piece of paper uh, makes it easier to remember what needs to be done before the visit is over. Um, in addition, and especially if it's a, um, a pre-consult telehealth visit or uh, some of the part of a consultation will be done, uh, having a friend or relative there to write notes can be very helpful because a lot of information is passed, some of it very technical in a short period of time, and it's good to have it written down um, and then be able to ask questions about it afterwards. Um, once the telehealth call starts, um, do make sure that you have those questions answered. Obviously, some of the things that we do in the office on the physical exam can't be done on telehealth, but many of them can, and many of the discussions about treatment plans, about the advantages and disadvantages of a, an approach to treating a type of cancer can certainly be done on the, on the telehealth call as well. So keep in mind that may be an advantage. Dr. Messner also asked me to discuss open notes, and this is a phenomenon that we have been dealing with for the past few years, and it is sometimes greatly misunderstood. So we want to make sure that everybody is aware of uh, what's happening. In a, uh, if, if you're a provider, um, uh, belongs to a group or belongs to a hospital system that has an electronic medical record, um, their notes a lot of information about your care and your visit, you'll be able to read um, on the confidential private portal that the, tele, that the electronic health record provides, and even the telehealth visit may be done through that platform. What often happens is that um, results of blood tests, urine tests, x-rays, 
other imaging studies, CAT scans, sonograms, even PET CAT scans, MRIs, can appear to you, uh, the, the written report can appear to you before anyone in your um, provider's office has the ability to even read it, no less call you back and help explain it to you. So uh, since many of us, or most of us, don't really have the skills to read these reports and understand them in the context of your own illness, please be careful. Uh, a number of things will sound terrible, um, and a number of things in the reports may be outside of the normal ranges if those are listed. Please be aware that, especially during treatment, some things are expected to be out of the normal range. And if they're not out of the normal range, that could be more problematic than if they are. So it's best to have somebody go over this with you from your provider's office. It may not be the provider him or herself. It may be someone in the office who is skilled in doing this, a physician extender, physician assistant, um, oncology nurse, uh, nurse practitioner. There are a number of other people who are trained and able to go over this with you and answer your questions. So make sure that you don't jump to any of the wrong conclusions or maybe an erroneously good conclusion by trying to interpret the report yourself. The uh, other thing uh, that's important to, to really emphasize is that when you make up your list of questions, um, it's not – don't only think about the uh, ins and outs of the treatment, but – about how you need to consider how the treatment is affecting you. Obviously, um, cancer itself, as well as cancer treatment, has effects on other parts of the body. And if you're having trouble with something that seems um, un unimportant at the moment, like um, un problems with your eyes or your skin, please mention those to your provider because those can um, often be helped and can often be helped in a telehealth visit, not just um, in, a, in an office visit. And those can be a sign that your treatment needs to be adjusted in some way. Sometimes a dose adjustment has to be made or the radiation schedule may need to be switched. So please be sure to uh, include that information in your questions and in the information you give in your visits, whether it's in a telehealth call or in person. With that, I'll turn the conference back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. Wonderful presentation, and I know there'll be questions for you as well during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Allison Moskowitz-Dugan, and Ms. Dugan is an oncology social worker, and she's our internship program manager at Cancer Care. And Ms. Dugan will be addressing self-care and stress management tips to cope with the practical, emotional, and financial stresses related to COVID. And then she will go over the Cancer Care's free programs and services. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Dugan. Hi there. Um, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Messner. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so I'd like to take a few minutes to address the psychosocial impact that COVID can have on people living with cancer and their caregivers, as well as highlight some of cancer care programs that might be of assistance. Uh, before I get started, I just want to take a moment to um, review, provide a brief review of cancer care services. So we are a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include resource navigation, counseling, support groups, um, educational workshops like this one, community programs, publications, and potential financial assistance. 
Um, to become connected to any cancer care services, interested parties can call Cancer Care's National Hopeline to speak to an oncology social worker. As we know, a cancer diagnosis can be very overwhelming, and many patients and caregivers have found that COVID has heightened these feelings of overwhelm or anxiety. There may be a large focus around avoiding COVID or concern around how COVID, um, a diagnosis of a COVID might impact a patient or a caregiver. As we've heard in this presentation, there are specific steps that you can take to protect yourself and your loved ones from COVID. However, despite taking these actionable steps, individuals still may be struggling with anxiety or worry around this. Additional support and guidance may help to relieve these feelings of anxiety. Working one-on-one -on -one with an oncology social worker through individual counseling can offer a space to express one's feelings, emotions, and concerns. Um, and as a reminder, Cancer Care does offer free cancer-focused counseling services to individuals impacted by cancer for those who live in New York and New Jersey. Joining a support group can also be another way of getting support through this time. Being a member of a support group can offer the opportunity to speak to others, gather and provide support, as well as obtain information. Cancer Care does offer um, online support groups to individuals across the country that take place using a password-protected message board format and are led by a professional oncology social workers that offer support and guidance. These groups are held for 15 weeks at a time, and you can register on our website to join. The next cycle is starting on June 1st. Many people diagnosed with cancer um, experience practical and financial concerns throughout one's treatment. Many have found that these concerns are exacerbated by COVID, as we know many have had, um, you know, financial um, or economic impacts due to the pandemic. It can be helpful to discuss any financial concerns with your medical providers or social worker, patient navigator, and even the um, health system's financial department at the treatment center to see if there's any financial options available to you. Cancer Care also provides free telephone resource navigation services to people living with cancer, post-treatment survivors, and caregivers. These services are provided by oncology social workers and professional resource navigators um, in both English and Spanish, and this is a service that centers on the practical challenges that arise from cancer by providing clients with resources, referrals, and potential financial assistance options. Coping Circle Workshops are another cancer care program. They are virtual, educational, and supportive workshops that are led by oncology social workers and qualified co-facilitators. We do have numerous um, of these programs available um, that have that have been recorded and are coming up. We actually are offering a two-part webinar series um, in June entitled Three Years Later, COVID-19 and Cancer. Part one on COVID and cancer will be on June 27th from 12 to 1 Eastern Standard Time, and part two on navigating risk of infections will take place on June 29th from 12 to 1 Eastern Standard Time. Information about this, um, uh, past workshops or other upcoming workshops can be found on Cancer Care's website. And finally, on the Cancer Care website, additionally, cancercare.org, there are a wide array, array of reading materials and information related to coping with COVID and cancer. These rec include recorded past edu Connect Education workshops and coping circles, as well as Cancer Out Loud, the Cancer Care podcast, which did a five-part mini-series on the impact of COVID in the cancer community. We also have multiple publications on COVID, the impact of COVID, and many other topics, as well as stories of help and hope. Um, on our website. So if you're interested in learning more, uh, please I, I encourage you to explore the website and of course call Cancer Care's National Hopeline at 800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. And with that, um, I will 
um, pass it back to Dr. Messner. Thank you so much for your attention opportunity to speak on this program. Well, thank you so much, Ms. Dugan. That was very informative. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask Dennis to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Dennis? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. At this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Okay. And um, a question uh, for Dr. Mulvey. My immune levels are low, and my last vaccine, my fifth, was on 9-23-22. When and should I get my next booster? Hi. Um, when you say immune levels, I assume that you mean your immunoglobulin levels. But based on the most recent recommendations, um, the second booster you would be eligible for now. And so I would have you proceed with it now, assuming that um, you're otherwise at a place where vaccines are appropriate. Awesome. Thank you. And um, a question for Dr. Suave. What is the longest someone can test positive for COVID without symptoms? I don't know that we actually know that information, but we have had patients um, and caregivers, um, not necessarily patients, go on for three months and even four months without symptoms and be positive. Okay, thank you. Um, and um, for Dr. Glala, my dad has tested, uh, ha has metastatic prostate cancer, but he won't get boosted. How can I convince him that it's for his benefit? Well, uh, you know, I gave some statistics that showed that if you are boosted, you um, do have, uh, first of all, the booster is very safe. It covers areas that he may not have been vaccinated before because it covers many variants of, of the um, uh, virus and that the very safest uh, way to be is to be boosted. All you can do is show him that you care and that uh, um, these uh, vaccines have saved really literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives, and it's so important that he not be sick. Um, but, you know, there's only so much you can do. Uh, knowledge, concern, but not cajoling would be my advice. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Gawa. And um, a question um, for, uh, for Dr. Suave. Is it true that the CDC has now recommended two high-dose flu vaccines 30 days apart? For immunocompromised patients, yes. There also is some added information coming out. There's some studies coming out looking um, <clears throat> at the use of, of different uh, antivirals for the flu. The flu, the flu influenza vaccine um, in immunocompromised hosts is not as effective, obviously, as it is in the immunocompetent. Um, so they're trying to enhance um, the response. I'm not sure whether this will totally work. Uh, and so right now we are just recommending the one for our, our patients. Um, but again, if anybody has signs or symptoms, influenza can be very readily diagnosed, and there are also some antivirals that work pretty well in making the disease modification that is needed to get somebody through it. Thank you. And for Dr. Wong, if one originally got the original shingles vaccine, is it necessary to get, get to now get Shingrix? So. Um, 
that's come up a few times. Uh, and we, again, with all these vaccines, I have to tell you that we meet now almost monthly and try to go over what the recommendations are and what's the wisest thing. Most people feel that the Shingrit, you don't really need to be revaccinated again if you've been vaccinated originally. But again, as with other vaccines, with Shingrits, it's very important to have more than one uh, if you are immunocompromised. So, um, and um, you can actually test for titers against the Zoster virus. So it might be worthwhile testing and perhaps going for another vaccine. But the recommendation right now is not to just automatically take the Shingrix. And um, as for Dr. Wong, I'm having trouble balancing being safe, alone at home, and living a bit. Can you speak to risk assessments? Um, there's a, an objective and a subjective component to risk assessment. Um, all of us have a certain level of comfort with risk before cancer and way before COVID, and that carries through um, being treated for cancer with COVID being in the environment. So there are specific um, recommendations from trusted, knowledgeable sources that use um, facts and evidence basis uh, in order to make these recommendations. Um, those are all well and good. Each of us then has our own uh, personal level of comfort in going to, into an environment that may or may not um, be a, a place of COVID is spread. Um, there, uh, sometimes we just have to ask ourselves, how important is it to me to do this activity? If it's very important to be out amongst people, since so many of us have been isolated during COVID and it's outdoors, um, and the weather is good and there'll be space between people, it, it may be within your own risk assessment, judging after the, you, you understand the, the guideline that it may be helpful to go or it may be desirable to go. So it really depends upon getting the right facts and then making your own sort of gut reaction as to how important the activity is and what you can do to remain safe by masking and hand washing and having distance between you and other people. And, uh, Carolyn, if I could just, yes. uh, this is Richard Grawl, just yes. expand on the excellent answer from Dr. Fleischman. Um, you know, it is, uh, very important, as, as he mentioned, that we be social and that we see people and, and do things. And, you know, if it's someone coming over to your house, they can test beforehand, or you can test if you're going to see someone. And the tests are very simple and easy to do and can give you some confidence that you're safe in, in that environment and uh, that they are. So let's be safe, but let's be social and, and see, make important contacts for us and, uh, and the rest and sort of spread our wings a little bit, but being safe as safe as possible. Excellent. Excellent point. Um, I actually want to thank all our speakers. You've been phenomenal. And, this has been, and I also want to thank our participants for asking such great questions. And also um, just really want to thank you all for being on this call today. Um, I do want to ask our speakers to just provide a takeaway um, of the call. Start with Dr. Grawler and then in the order of your speaking um, to please go ahead. Um, um, so I'll ask Dr. Grawler, Dr. Mulvey, Dr. Suave. Um, 
Dr. Fleischman and uh, Ms. Dugan. So, um, Dr. Grohl, do you want to start? Well, thanks. We're going in order. That sounds great. Uh, so, um, you know, as you can tell from this call, making sure that you have good knowledge, accurate knowledge, uh, is really important. Recognize that there have been changes. We have a lot of immunity, and uh, our speakers have told us how we maximize that immunity. And even if one gets the illness, through testing, we can know early on, and we have effective medications that your doctor can be very helpful with. So, uh, um, you know, uh, we still have to be wary of COVID. We still have to be wary of our with our families and caregivers, but uh, we can have a more active world and, and be safe and uh, either protected or treated at the same time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Dr. Malvey. Yeah, very well said. I think we're, we all will probably share similar sentiments, but um, wonderful questions that were asked by the participants today. I'm struck with the participant asking about the balance of risks. This comes up so frequently with our patients, and it's always um, a very individualized conversation, but uh, I say that we are in, you know, this this field because our intention is all to help people with cancer live their best quality of life to be able to enjoy the things that they enjoy doing. And so um, certainly life is for living, and so we should feel empowered by all of the tools we have available to try and prevent these infectious complications, to use any tool that we do have if infections do develop, um, and to try and have good conversations and relationships with our with our doctors and with our care teams to make sure that we have good support and are making decisions that allow us to really live life and 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 not only get through treatments but to still feel you know like ourselves. Excellent and uh, excellent, Dr. Swada. My sentiments are similar to uh, what has been said by the previous uh, two speakers. I think we need to take away a certain degree of um, hope from from what has happened over the past three years with COVID. I think this pandemic had, you know, really god-awful parts to it, but what it did serve to do is it galvanized a lot of the uh, physicians and the cancer patients into thinking things out better, into coming up with newer ways of looking at the threat of infection, which has always been a threat, but now I think we have ways to handle it better, to have more hope of getting through it, of being able to enjoy life even though um, a cancer diagnosis has been made and be able to get through treatments and, and to be out there. And so um, I, I think um, where we are now is, is in a position of a lot greater positivity and hope. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Dr. Fleischman. Yes, um, we uh, have all bemoaned a number of things we've lost during the pandemic, uh, people as well as confidence in the type of life we had before that. But we, we have learned that there are some things that have been developed, um, maybe uh, not by choice, but have really worked out well, like uh, having telehealth visits. Uh, none of us know if the telehealth visits will continue to be covered for an extended period of time, and we will find that out. But we hope that some of the elements can be uh, kept 
in the healthcare we have because of all the advantages we discussed. Excellent. Thank you so much. And uh, Ms. Uh, Ms. Duggan? Yeah, you know, I just want to, as a takeaway, recognize how overwhelming and anxiety-inducing the pandemic has been for many, uh, many of us. And, of course, the combination of this uh, with cancer, you know, the, the combination of, of co concern around COVID and cancer um, has really intensified those feelings of, of anxiety and concern. So I would encourage you all to please communicate any concerns you have to your healthcare team, um, you know, walk through that with them, make a plan with them um, to be able to, you know, make plans to and take actions that feel comfortable to you. And, and also know that you know, if you are struggling with some of these feelings, you're not alone, and there are a number of support services available to you um, through many organizations, but also through Cancer Care, which can be accessed on our website or by calling our helpline. Perfect. Thank you. I want to thank all of our speakers um, and our participants. Um, they've been phenomenal. This has been an amazing call. As Dr. Growler had said at the beginning, we've done many, many of these calls, about six or seven of them. Um, I have to say the questions on this one were the most uh, really important, well, very informative questions and very poignant questions, very important questions about moving on as well and, and what to do. And um, um, I, I would not want anyone to feel when you leave this call that you're alone. You're now part of a community of support and we're here to help you. What that means is that you certainly have your whole healthcare team and you also have, of course, all of the um, healthcare team and you also have, of course, your um, cancer care to contact as well. Um, and if our staff aren't able to help you, we'll be able to refer you to uh, other organizations that can help you. And at the end of today's program, you will be getting a survey monkey evaluation. And in that evaluation, there'll be um, information about today's call, but also there will be information about, about, about um, any of the uh, websites or, or telephone numbers that we gave out so that you'll all be able to access them. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.